This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. I have good news. Today is December the 31st, which means 2020 is officially over. My name is John Dunn, and 273 days ago, we launched the Best Friends Podcast. When COVID hit, we were all trying to figure out the best way to navigate through this, right? How can we share our experiences and knowledge, and not even just to learn, but to be together and not feel so alone? So we thought a podcast would be a great way for us to have some critical discussions, hearing from the best and brightest from across the country, and of course, tons of laughing from all my great jokes. So yeah, this thing went from like zero to a hundred very quickly. And I got to tell you, I am very thankful that it did. Today's episode, given that it is the end of the year, like so many others, we thought a reflection on where we've been is important. So let's compile some of the best of what's happened over those 273 days and 45 episodes. Now I know this will be news to you, but I talk a lot all of the time, regardless of setting or audience. So the interviews are generally much, much longer than what we put out in the episode. So some of the bits you're going to hear today are previously unreleased, which is why we're calling this the best of and B-sides. So to kick it off, the second most downloaded episode of the Best Friends podcast from back in June, James Evans was our guest. He's the president of CARE, Companions and Animals for Reform and Equity. After the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, weeks of civil unrest, calls for justice. This all led to some long overdue acknowledgments of the lack of diversity in our field and how it's hurt us as a movement and how it's hurt the public, pet owners, on so many levels and what we can do going forward. So from episode 16, Leaning In and Listening, Diversity and Inclusion in Animal Welfare. But we go with what we know and we go with what we're comfortable with, right? Like it's easy for me to go to a conference and be in a room educating or talking about issues with a room full of white people. It's easy for me to go and do an adoption event in a predominantly white neighborhood, middle class. It's easy for me to do that. It's comfortable. I don't intentionally think about that, James. I don't think... Thank God I'm going to the white neighborhood to do adoptions today. It's going to be so much easier. It's just what we've done. Right. So it's, and and I saw a line this week uh, that I thought was interesting, which is it's not enough to be not racist. You have to be anti-racist. Like you have to be really intentional. You know, we have to think about it and not just let, I guess, like the subconscious guide us. Yes. But I think being anti-racism or being pro-feminist or I, I, I understand the need for these segregated isms, right? But the the reality is, is that I just want people to be the best Americans that they can be, right? We've already written all these things down. On paper, they are beautiful. They sound beautiful. I think as, as flawed as our founders were and not including everyone, which includes women, the principal concepts are there, right? I mean, I, I think... All, all I think we have to ask ourselves is, are we being fair? Are we treating one another the same way 
Am I treating you the way I would want to be treated? I think that is, I mean, I, I learned that early. I, I, I think that I fell in love with coming from a religious family. And obviously our constitution is sort of a religious derivative. That idea that we would just treat one another the way we would want to be treated, I think is a, is a pretty easy thing. And I don't think you can do that without being anti-racist or being anti-sexist. And so I think we just, all of us have to learn how to love a little bit better. And I don't think you can love a person and be racist, not, not love in the sense of a verb, right? Not in this like silly, like, I love you. I love all people. I don't see color. I mean, I think that's just silly, right? I mean, when you love someone, you, you, one, you ask them <laughs> how they're doing and you listen um, to their pain. And so, you know, I, I really don't, my people are unique to me. I love them, but on a much greater sense, I love people. And I, I don't want to see anyone uncomfortable. I don't want to see anyone in pain. I've helped all kinds of people in my business. I've had all kinds of interns in my business. And I, I think I'm a better person for absorbing all of those different stories. And I, I, I think there's room in this movement for us to do that. And if we can do that, the reality is more animals will be saved, right? If we can lower our fear and our discomfort and work more towards more inclusion, diversity will happen. And then more people will become part of the network and fall in love with the movement and more animals will be saved. We will raise more money and we will have more volunteers. But I think the first thing is to, is to get past yourself because ultimately it's not about your discomfort. It's, it's about the discomfort of animals in a, you know, a, a, a six by 10 cage. And if you love them, you will get past your fear or, and discomfort with the other, with the other. Even if it's, even if your discomfort is with the fact that you didn't realize you were being, you know, uninclusive or semi-racist or whatever you want to call it in the first place, it's like, okay, fine, that feel uncomfortable and then move forward. Like, let it go and and start thinking about what's best for these animals that literally don't belong in a cage. I mean, it is the, the most painful thing in the world for me to watch even the happiest animal. I mean, dogs are supposed, <laughs> supposed to be running around. I'm sorry. Like you, you can be the best shelter director this world has ever seen. And, and ultimately animals don't belong in cages. And I guess I have a personal connection to that because many of my relatives are have been behind bars but i just i i I think the way forward as silly as it sounds is is with love and compassion and and the way you open is with listening you know and it's not a it's not about listening to see where you can jump in and and figure out if your you know suffrage story is is more desperate than mine it's just listen to me and um, let's move forward together with solutions that I think are unique to my experience. And, you know, you have solutions that might be unique to yours. So best friends, one of our guiding principles is kindness. And you wouldn't believe how controversial that word can be <laughs> when, when it comes to certain issues, you know? Right. Um, it, it, and so I think that can be very illustrative uh, for me and hopefully for others to realize when we talk about kindness, we don't apply it individually to things we want to apply it to. When we talk about kindness, we mean kindness. Yes, that is, it's an open, 
It is an open book. It means that you're kind to poor people the same way you are kind to, to wealthy people. You know, one would argue that every human exchange is somewhat of a political exchange, right? I, I, I'm going to, if you, if I know that you're wealthy, I'm going to be kind to you because you may do something for me down the road. But if you are not wealthy and you come into the shelter or the rescue and I can see that you're not wealthy, maybe I'm not going to be so kind to you. Maybe there's nothing in it for me to be kind to you. And I think that, you know, do those biases happen? And I think that's the first thing that we all have to deal with is, yes, they happen. Like it happens in your head. But the first person you have to, I think, start listening to is yourself. Right. I think many of us aren't even listening to our own voice and saying, does does my voice. Is it incongruent with the principles that I'm projecting? You know, does that does that police officer that has his knee on Floyd's neck? Is he listening to his own voice? Is, Is the voice where he swore to uphold the law? And so the answer is obviously no. But what is the other voice that he's listening to? You know, Floyd's a black guy. He's probably a criminal and criminals should be punished. And and I believe that they should be. But police officers jobs aren't to punish that their jobs are to deliver that person's body into a courtroom so that a court of law can decide whether or not a crime happened in the first place. It it would be like an EMT um, coming to a scene and doing open heart surgery on the sidewalk. Right? That's that's not the EMT's job. The EMT's job is to get the person to the hospital, period. And whether or not they're wealthy, whether or not they're poor, whether or not they smell bad, whether or not they're cursing, your job is to get that person to the hospital. And the police, their job is to get that person into a courthouse. But instead, you know, too many officers are listening to a voice other than the voice that they swore to listen to. Animal welfare, the same thing. We like to say that we speak dog and cat, and in reality, we speak human because dogs don't really care who comes to get them and love them, and neither do cats. So who are we really listening to? We are we are listening to narratives about other people, but we are certainly not listening to the animals because the, the animals, I think, listen at a much, much higher level than we do. Their, their simple minds allow them to hear very simple stories. Love and pain. You hurt me, I'm going to run. You love me, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to stick by you. Human beings, we, we have all these, this big brain and we're listening to all these other voices and we just need to simplify and get back down to, am I being kind? Is the person that's walking into the shelter, do I believe that they're capable of being kind? And I and I think, are we going to get it wrong? Absolutely. I've, I've gotten that wrong hundreds of times, trusted the wrong person. But I think by and large, most people are kind and most people are kinder when they are presented with kindness. Right. And so I think your guiding principles are are dead on. And we just have to ask ourselves, are we operating with our selfish voice or are we operating with a collective good voice? And that's, you know, it's a battle that happens all day, every day. And it's not, like I said, you're going to get it wrong, but I, I think without listening and just being on sort of autopilot um, and, I, and not slowing down and saying, listening to your own voice is, I think is the real, the real tragedy. Before we jump to our next clip, we just want to say we appreciate you. 
of course, for subscribing, downloading, sharing, rating, reviewing the podcast, but we appreciate you for every single thing you do every day, pandemic and lockdowns or not. And it doesn't matter what you do. This work is hard as hell on the body and the mind and the soul, but you and your efforts are changing the lives of pets and people. As hard as this year has been, it has been a significant year in animal sheltering and animal welfare. I mean, the massive response from the public to foster animals as the pandemic took hold, programmatic changes, community-based sheltering, human-animal support services conversations. I know people say this all the time, but this time it's for real. It's been a game-changing year. On episode 40, we welcome Sloan Hawes. She's a research associate at the Institute for Human-Animal Connection at the University of Denver. You'll hear Sloan refer to IHAC, that's the institute. She and a couple of her colleagues had a commentary paper published called Punishment to Support, the Need to Align Animal Control Enforcement with the Human Social Justice Movement. Now, that's a mouthful even for me, but just boil it down and it's basically this trying to understand how the current model of animal control, animal services, can be better. Better for both people and pets. Why do you think, though, that we have not, historically, been better aligned with social services? It makes sense, obviously, that we're very animal-centric, right? We're all here to save animals, but we've never made that connection, recognized it, and acted on the people part you know, who actually own the pets. It's like we've just taken them out of the equation. Why do you think that is? It's a great question. I feel like that is kind of the question that animal welfare groups are reckoning with that we at IHAC are really trying to wrap our arms around as a research group. And as a researcher, um, it really kind of comes down to data and metrics and kind of which measures have we decided to pursue as our benchmarks as a field in animal welfare compared to what are the benchmarks in more of a human service agency orientation? And I think kind of at the heart of it, frankly, John, is um, just how much or how well we've captured the community's perspective um, and how do we view that community? I think my overarching kind of thought is that a lot of the way animal services has approached communities is from a very deficit-based view. Really, what are all the problems that people have that then lead to them not being able to keep their pets or not being able to adopt out new pets? And that really kind of flies in the face of the social work value of, of looking at everything from a strengths-based view and looking at really what does the capacity already have that we can leverage and build upon that's a big thing that I think our research at IHAC focuses on is trying to develop metrics using a One Health framework, looking at the interconnectedness of human, animal, and environment health outcomes to bring these kind of strengths-based metrics into the animal welfare space instead of looking at everything from more of this kind of deficit problem view. We've tried to address some of these things on the podcast. The uh, Best Friends Network town halls have gone into this as well, other organizations, obviously, but defining terms and decision-making around them, individual judgments will always come into play. It's just the way it is. But I think we, we need to have guidelines. We need to agree on things that can uh, inform. What I'm, so what I'm saying, we can have this 30,000-foot level conversation, Sloan, about human, animal, social services, race, and class, and socioeconomics. 
but there's still actual guidance needed to help define or inform decision-making for lack of a better way to say it, I guess, what is good and what is bad? Does that does that make any sense? Language really does matter. Um, and how we define those words in policy, in practice, as we interact with folks, like even just the language that we use in town halls and as we start explaining new program areas, that language is, is step one. Um, and so one piece that I think is really important to tease out in the animal control um, conversation is the idea of cruelty you know, which is like maybe more intentional, like there's some actual intent behind that versus neglect, which I think is is, neglect is this area that really has a lot more opportunity to be in that gray area that you're talking about. I think the definition of cruelty is codified. You know, there there are appropriate um, interventions to address cruelty. And there's a whole area of research out there on the connection between interspecies violence, like between violence against animals and violence against people. And I guess I feel like we've spent too much time on that because it's, especially in research, because it it is a small percentage of the cases, I think, that most animal control officers, protection officers are experiencing in the field. And this is part of the work that um, IHEC is um, hoping to do in the coming years, is really starting to get at the proportion of cases that are more in this gray area that you're talking about, in this area of neglect, that I think if you look at it through a social work view, really what what we're kind of known for as a field is, is looking at problems, not as just an individual's problem, but as part of a broader system that involves all of these factors like a socioeconomic status and race and ethnicity and uh, cultural background and values, what you start to recognize is that issue of neglect is an issue of capacity, either of that individual, of that community as a whole, how much they have access to services. Um, some of these areas that, um, whereas animal welfare organizations or an animal protection officer might be more limited in addressing that individual level of capacity issues um, or strengths that that person has that maybe doesn't align with them being a quote-unquote responsible pet owner. We as animal welfare organizations do really have an opportunity to make an impact on that maybe more community-wide level of are we providing accessible services to this area? Um, Do we have staff members that speak the language of the folks who live in our um, quote-unquote high intake communities? I think that's where this like recognizing the gray area that you're pointing out in neglect, understanding the root causes of cruelty and neglect, and um, trying to identify program solutions on the animal welfare side to address those root causes. Um, The research backs the program side up by helping identify what those causes are using both qualitative and quantitative methods. But it really comes down to the programs having kind of really the humility to acknowledge like, hey, we're still seeing cruelty and neglect in our communities. What we're doing isn't working. Like, let's put the resources that we're putting into this really reactive system of providing citations to these to these community members. Let's actually put it into providing some support resources that it could could address those root causes. Um, And so that's where this shift in language um, that we bring out in the commentary of going. I would even argue we're a little bit behind in our language already in the commentary going from punishment orientation and animal control to support. I'd actually say let's start swapping out support for capacity because we really don't want to be building a system where where people are relying on us as as animal welfare or agencies to care for their pets. 
what the goal of social work has always been and what I think the goal of animal welfare is as well is to work ourselves out of a job, right? Which requires community to have the capacity at each of those levels, individual to community level to like achieve true health and welfare for themselves and for their pets. And that's not going to be done if we keep punishing people, if we keep kind of breaking down their access to the system that's going to support their health and wellness. So language is the start of that, but also just like decentering everything we've ever thought about this, using data to inform our progress moving forward, but really just being able to acknowledge with humility, like what we're doing isn't working and we need to find something, some new strategies. Continuing on with this discussion, we talked with Ashley Anderson much. She's the Senior Program Manager of Policy and Enforcement Reform with Pets for Life of the Humane Society of the United States. This was episode 42. Ashley's been doing this for a while. I would even dare say she's a full-on Jedi master. Her role involves working with field services departments across the country to figure out how they can stop punishing pet owners and start helping them. I think it's really stopping to take a look at the system, which we're we're doing more so now than we ever have in the past in animal welfare. And I think it's important because when I look at enforcement and what I was doing, I realized that it came down to just this simple idea of, am I criminalizing poverty? Is somebody now on my radar for being poor in a way that I'm going to impact their lives forever? You know, we're working in a system that ends up handing out these financial penalties and criminal penalties to pet owners who can't afford basic needs. And when they can't afford basic needs, it's typically an access to care issue. But then we just turn around and we say, well, we have a complaint. Here we are. Uh, Here's what you have to fix. Most of the time, people that I ran into would say, okay, I'll do it. I want to keep my pet. How do I do this? I can't afford this or I don't know where to get this. And most of the time, the answer has been, uh, well, you have to figure it out. Really not my problem. Here's your warning. See you in two weeks. If it's not fixed, then we have a problem. So that's kind of the old way. Um, And I think what I'm seeing now, what I'm definitely seeing now is just, A, the conversation has started. It started years ago, but I think implementation has been a difficult process for many organizations, whether it's just philosophically or the whole culture, culture of an organization. And then letting that bleed into all of the other departments and then finding some sort of way to come together because there are a lot of people that have a difficult time with change in general. But I'm seeing overall organizational shifts of how can we make more of a positive impact in our community to all pet owners, not creating this narrative around if you can't afford it, you shouldn't have it. Now we're talking about how to keep pets in the home, keep them out of shelters, create access and resources, reassessing the impact of work, reinvesting some of the operating budget that maybe was not making a larger impact in organizations. I'm seeing a lot of groups with the support-based approach really coming together and seeing that the intake process is a little bit better now and Um, how the clinic is working is better now, and how everybody is working together in the organization just seems to be a bit more productive um, and positive. The other piece I'm seeing a change in is, is language, how we're talking about certain things when it comes to animal cruelty or when we talk about punishment or support. What I've seen over time is that this, it's kind of like testing the water 
a lot of people want to just dip that big toe in, give a little bit of support, see how that feels, um, which is fine, which I think is, is the best way that everybody should approach something that's new to them. Um, and then seeing that nothing negative is coming out of that change and then kind of expanding on that and then continuing to do that. So it's just been this process that I've watched over time with several organizations, but it starts with one officer, one person that they go out to do a call on, and one form of support. And then that has just expanded into larger programs or uh, reinvesting of funds to make sure that all of these departments can work together to keep pets in the home. This is overwhelming for me, and I'm just sitting here talking about it, but I think that's the challenge for us, best friends, for you, uh, HSUS, American Pets Alive, all of these organizations across the country, for us to work with communities, leaders in those communities, to provide the right structure, I guess, at that level, to make sure we are it's not a great way to say it, but we're handholding. So we're bringing people along and not just those who are working in the field, the community side also, we need to communicate to them what we're doing and how we're doing it and their role, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think it's for us to be very cognizant of that. So, you know, people, communities, municipalities, field services, uh, staff aren't just throwing their hands up and saying, this is too hard, screw it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's there are a lot of benefits to obviously having connections, but again, that's when you're ready to take that larger leap into a, a differently funded enforcement department and really just changing the face of your organization and your um, animal control officers or humane officers. You have to take it bit by bit. This is something that it will never happen overnight for anybody, regardless of how much money you have as well, because it's more than just being able to go purchase a new fence or a doghouse or some leashes or frontline, whatever it may be. It's really something that takes time to look back and reflect on why are we doing, why are we investigating this way? Why are we making high priority calls in this manner, in this one specific zip code? Are we disproportionately patrolling for some reason? Are we disproportionately handing out citations for some reason? How, how is the narrative of how we're portraying these stories in our daily asks for money or on social media or how we're talking about people or snapping photos over the fence and showing you know this horrible situation that really somebody just needs help? There are so many layers to peel back in this conversation and in this change that if you're in the work, you're an officer, you're doing the field, then you look at that one dog that has that mammary mass that you have a decision to make and you weigh your options. Because I know as an enforcement officer in animal welfare, you in that organization have a lot more power than somebody else may have. That has been the one part of animal welfare organizations that is always put out there, always for the asks, you know, rescue and help us be the hero and find a new home for this pet. And so it's always been the face of of animal welfare organizations. Changing that narrative into, hey, I'm in this position, but I want to start making an impact in this way because I can leave this dog with this family that they love very much. That story can then affect the person that's helping you with paperwork. And then that story can from the paperwork, help somebody in adoptions, and and it trickles down in that manner. I think philosophically, 
that's probably the biggest hurdle we have to overcome. More than money, more than finding where to get this supply. You do any ask for towels and then the shelter has 10,000 towels the next day. So I think that it's more so this philosophy and, and changing our mind about people that are poor and have pets and need help and not just saying, here's this poor guy with this pit bull, let's take that dog away. The economy, it's not great. Like me, you might be looking at your 401k or other investments in the stock market and think, hey, this is fine. Despite what I'm hearing on the news, I don't see it. I don't feel it. But for millions of Americans, they are feeling it. Even with eviction moratoriums, the experts say it's just delaying the inevitable. Moratoriums aren't rent forgiveness. Jody Polanski is the founder and executive director of Lost Our Home Pet Rescue in Arizona. We talked about the services they provide, which includes a temporary care program. And just keep in mind that this is episode 24. Uh, it's from July, so the numbers might just be a little bit out of date. There are so many people that are just one paycheck away from being homeless. One paycheck away. That's Jody Polanski. And that one paycheck they missed set them into this downward spiral to the point that they lost their home. In 2008, Jody was a mortgage loan officer in Phoenix, Arizona. And I was also doing pet rescue at the time. And I kept seeing kind of firsthand all the pets that were being abandoned in foreclosed homes. Um, in 2008, that was back when Phoenix was number two in euthanasias for the country and also number two in foreclosures for the country. After seeing the animals affected by the housing crisis, she made the decision to create Lost Our Home Pet Rescue. And when I did that, at the same time, I realized there was not really any resources out there for pet parents that needed some help to keep their pets. So um, once I opened the rescue up, I realized that we can provide some resources for the pet parents. A lot of the pets that are going into shelters are being abandoned and have to be. The organization doesn't work like you may think. Yes, they help pets who have been affected by evictions and foreclosures, but the primary goal isn't to save them by rehoming them. They want to keep families together. And so when it comes to you know, foreclosure eviction, a lot of times people may be looking for resources because they know it's going to happen and things fall out last minute or they just can't find anything and they don't want to lose their pet. They love their pet. Their pet is their child, you know, or children, plural. They're really trying to better their life and they just need a little helping hand. That helping hand comes in the form of what they call their temporary care program. And that program came from people who were being evicted or losing their home to foreclosure and they could not find a place to rent right away that allowed their pets. So they're like, okay, I can move in with my family or my friend, but I can't bring my dogs with me or I can't bring my cats with me because either their land that weren't allowed or they got pets there that, that won't get along or the people I'm moving in with weren't allowed, whatever the reason is, right? And they don't want to lose their pets. Like, can you watch my pet for me for 90 days while I'm staying at my family or friend's house for those few months so I can get back on my feet again and get into a pet-friendly housing. And this program, by the way, it's not only for housing issues. Hospitalizations, inpatient treatment. So PTSD treatments will take 60 days. Right now we're doing some work. We're helping COVID patients who are in the hospital. We do a lot with domestic violence and, um, and then homeless shelters. Lost Our Home Pet Rescue, they do have a facility that makes this kind of program easier, but you don't need to have a facility to make this work. Our shelter, we're keeping not very full because of the amount of people you need the shelter to be able to care for the pets. And for COVID-19 reasons and, and social distancing, we just can't have a full shelter and have it safe for people and pets both. So we're using a lot of foster homes. Absolutely, foster homes are a big part of making this work. But Jody pointed out another really smart idea. We've connected with boarding facilities. Right now, they're at a loss for business. 
because people are not traveling. So the boarding facilities are going to give you a much better deal on boarding your pets right now. And so every rescue, if, if they can, you know, if they can just temporarily board the pet, whether it be a foster home or a boarding facility or earn their shelter to help people out, just get through this, it will keep them from people from losing their pet. And, and the amount of, you know, it's intake diversion, right? It's, I mean, they don't go into shelter permanently. For me, it's about keeping pets and families together. It's that bond between them and any rescue can do this. I asked her what they've been seeing in Arizona. Are more and more people needing help because of the economy? She said that so far, housing-related requests are low, but that's very likely due to the moratoriums on evictions that have been in place. The evictions ones are the one that I'm, I don't want to say most worried about, but that's going to be the big flood. Like, that's where I'm, like, we're trying to brace ourselves for that because we already have more than we can handle right now. And we know that once that moratorium is gone um, and as people start realizing they've got to pay this back and they can't, there is going to be a floodgate that's going to open up. You know, I don't know if it's going to be worse in 2008 or not. I, I just don't know. But I know that there's a big, way bigger need than there's help out there around the entire country. At this point, you may have the same question I did. Why aren't more organizations doing this kind of work? There are some issues in the cost of caring for the pet, the length of time you're caring for the pet and finding a way to do that, which is a cost, right? <laughs> and then also the liability of having an own animal in your care. But there's a way to get around all of that. And it's just, you know, and I, I'm happy to help anybody that wants to start the program up. I mean, that's my one of my bigger picture dreams is to get this program around the whole country. No better time than now to put resources where people and pets need it the most. We've come so far. And I think about the setback, you know, that this is going to be. It doesn't have to be as big as it could be if we all work together and provide the kind of services that our cities need. Anybody could do this. We started off doing this as a all-volunteer foster-based rescue, and we did this. <laughs> and even on a small scale to start, just start. Just just do it. If you help one pet, if you help three families, you've helped that many more people keep their families together. And the outcome of it, like the, the way you feel when you see the pet parents and pets being reunited again, I mean, it's... For as great as you think an adoption feels, reuniting a pet and pet parent, they work so hard to stay together. It's an unbelievable feeling that you've helped keep this family together and keep this pet out of the shelter, you know, permanently. So it's it's so worth it. Now, keeping with this theme, we're going to go to episode 33, where we checked in with Shannon Glenn in Minnesota. She launched the North Minneapolis Pet Resource Center. It's designed to provide pet owners with whatever they need to keep their pets. Shannon and I talked about that and her perspectives on providing judgment-free assistance. You, North Minneapolis, you're in an area where basic services, businesses, they're just not there, right? You, you just got a grocery store, you said finding a fresh vegetable, a challenge, let alone things like pet retailers for supplies. So we know there isn't enough access for pet owners in urban America and rural America. So if someone's listening to this, they may say, you know what? This is needed. Nobody's doing this where I live. I'm going to start it. Awesome. It'll be a huge help regardless of where you are. But your organization is an example of one, uh, you know, you go beyond simple food. It's not just a pet food pantry. It's a more holistic approach. So people listening to this may say, awesome, I want to do that. But I don't have the human social services background and connections in the, you know, houseless community that Shannon does because of her career. So how does someone get started uh, on something like this? Yeah, I think. For me, one of the biggest things that I see that's maybe missing in animal welfare is, you know, starting programs either where you live or living where you want to start the programs. 
So, you know, using that community organizer kind of work of you can't work in a community unless you know the community. So instead of driving to and helping, it's really important that you're from there and that you're assisting your neighbors and that your neighbors know you and they trust you. We do so much with community building. I have former clients of mine from when I worked with other human service agencies now coming to us because they live in the community. And I told them years ago that I was going to start one of the first pet-friendly homeless shelters in the city, but this was the next best thing that I could do. And they're coming to like help volunteer because we talked about it years ago. It's happening. They're not only clients, they're going to come volunteer. So really making sure that the community is on board with what you're doing is also really, really important. But if you have a passion for doing it, I would just say, you know, you've got to start somewhere, whether that's sharing a small space with a groomer and being open two days a week, or, you know, driving around with your car and working with other community organizations to do pet food pantry pop-ups. I mean, we all start somewhere and we can grow from that. One of the things that this week's town hall is going to cover is the line between neglect and cruelty, or is it just that someone, the owner, doesn't have the tools to provide adequate care? How do we know the difference between those things? Like, I don't even know if I'll put this in, but I'm curious for your take on that. There are things that like you see at your clinics that, you know, how have you learned to distinguish those things? Oh my gosh. I hope that if you don't put this in, that there's at least, you just play the snippet because I think this is a really, really important conversation that folks need to be having, right? I think that this is where part of the living in the community that you serve might come in, right? So people love their pets. That love might look different in forms of care based on access to resources that those folks might have. It might also be knowledge of pet care. It might also be cultural For example, we have folks that I know come to our clinic and they are not interested in spaying and neutering because they want to have a litter of puppies. I've had clients that we eventually did get their dogs spayed and neutered, but they were living on $99 a month and having those litters of puppies supplemented their income, but they loved their dogs and they loved those puppies and they worked their butts off to find the best homes. Like if there was a super barrier specific adoption application, like that is what they were doing for these dogs to make sure that they could find the best families that they felt were fit for these puppies. So in short, at our wellness clinics, have I had that gut reaction of, oh, there might be something going on? The answer is no. Um, I think that through having conversations and getting to know a lot of our clients and the folks that we serve, we're able to have those conversations that if something were to come up, we could just be like, hey, have you ever thought of, or here's a great resource. And most of the time they would come to us and ask us those questions. Like my dog has an infection my dog got into an altercation with the neighbor's dog because I don't have a fence. Do you happen to have a tie out? And so removing those stigmas of people that tie their dogs out or whatever it may be is really important when you're working in these communities and just making sure that we're able to meet people where they're at. On some level, you know, people who are turning out for a a clinic, 
uh, like the ones you put on, they're obviously interested in providing care. So it, it doesn't surprise me that you wouldn't see you know, those kind of issues. But let's say you and I are driving through North Minneapolis, there may very well be things that make me uncomfortable in terms of the care provided, the care that I see. Like, you know, it's that <laughs> I would never let my dog blank. Um, I don't know, Shannon, spend most of the time outside. But truly, you know, if you think about it, the question is really like, what does outside look like? I think it has to be case by case and even maybe realigning your brain as to what adequate care really means and what your meter, I, I'm blabbing, but <laughs> you get my point. Like there are these, maybe it didn't meet my standards historically because my standards were up here really when they should have been here because that's totally reasonable. And John, I think it really comes from a place of privilege, right? I mean, we see it all the time in the network partners group and the American Pets Alive groups like of rescues from across the country and run by older white women. And I would say 98, maybe that's a little high. We'll say 80% of the time, those folks have the mindset of if you can't afford it, you can't have it. And that is just so mind boggling to me these days of like, how can you be operating a rescue or an organization or a director of a municipal shelter and be involved in this movement and still have that mindset. And it's the same as like, I would rather be homeless than give up my dog. Like those two statements piss me off more than anything in the work that we do (laughs) because you just don't, know what all is going on with that family and you're making assumptions as to what life is like being homeless or you know having your pet taken away because more than likely those folks have never had that happen cats unfortunately are dying in shelters at a two to one rate so for every dog killed two cats are killed so it stands to reason that we spent time focusing on this issue with the podcast And here are three of the very best experts in this area. First up, co-founder of the Million Cat Challenge, Dr. Kate Hurley. We are mismatching the solution to the problem. We are trying to save cats that didn't need to be saved. We are creating situations where cats need to be saved when that didn't need to be the case at all. And we are taking a dog paradigm and applying it as if cats are just furry little dogs with sharp claws and pointy ears and bad attitudes. And they are not. They are not. And I think we have an opportunity now to weave in the social justice aspect of community cat management or cat man. I shouldn't even say community cat management, cat management and animal sheltering for cats and recognize that some of the cultural values that are part of animal sheltering are not universal and that there are people in our communities who have beloved cats that are allowed outside. And there are people in our communities who love their community cats, that their community cat might be their very most important social contact that they have, you know, for for a lot of people. That cat that they feed on their back porch, that is one of the high points of their day and one of the most important mammals that they interact with, right? And too often we have made a judgment that those cats that come into the shelter shouldn't go back. And now we've started to wrap our mind around the idea if they're not socialized, if they're feral, then they could go back. But we still are working on wrapping our mind around the fact that if they're friendly, we should try to find them a different home 
But if they're in good body condition and they're friendly, that means good body condition means someone was taking care of them. And friendly means somebody loves them. Somebody's petting that cat. That cat has a name. That cat might have five names because five people might love it. (laughs) But that cat is loved. That cat is valued. That cat's in good body condition and it's social. I don't know if you see the same where you live, uh, but but on the next door app here in my neighborhood, we basically have the same few types of posts like over and over. One is I saw someone on my outdoor camera walking past my house in the middle of the night. Do you know who it was? Yeah. And another, it, it's cats, cat related. Is this your cat? I lost a cat. Uh, and I do my darndest to communicate that very point, right? Which is you found a friendly cat. Yep. That doesn't mean that that cat needs to come into your house. And that's a very hard thing for the average, you know, cat loving yeah. member of the public to grasp. I think, you know, there was a post the other day, this lady said, I've been able to save three similar cats just like this, a friendly cat that showed up on her doorstep, um, perfectly healthy looking cat, but I can't take another right now. And I don't think I'll be able to get him adopted out. Yeah. So for her, it was like, you know, she was looking to save that cat. And the alternative to save is not save. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I can tell her, Hey, that's totally, that cat's totally fine. But for so many people, it's like unfathomable for them to see it that way. Right. And probably maybe what she was doing is she saved a cat and then the person whose cat she saved got another cat. And then she saved that one. And that person got another cat because they like cats. (laughs) And so they kept getting cats. And on a grand scale, that's something that may happen with animal shelters, right? People save cats. For those of you who are listening, I'm making air quotes. They save cats that are in good body condition and friendly. Those cats didn't need to be saved. They needed to be sterilized. They needed to be vaccinated. They needed to be, and they need to get some identification on them. And maybe the person who loved that cat needed a little help to get some cat food or something. But if we can stop saving cats that don't need to be saved and instead provide resources to communities so those cats can get spayed and neutered instead. We can focus our efforts on those cats that do need to be saved, that aren't doing well. They're not in good body condition. They're known to have been abandoned because the people moved out and now like the cat is left behind. And we know that this cat is in need of a new living situation, or this cat has been the victim of neglect or cruelty, or this is one of 25 cats that's in someone's yard and like this, this situation has to change. Those are the cats that need to be saved, and we could do an amazing job of saving those if we weren't also trying to save all the other ones. So this woman I was saying, you know, I was messaging with her on Nextdoor, there is this educational opportunity, but at the end of the day, I'm just a dude. I'm just some guy on Nextdoor saying that this is better than that, and you shouldn't be doing this, Yeah. and that the feelings you're doing, you think you're saving a life. I'm a saying essentially that you're not, Yeah. and- I mean, I don't mean to say it like that, but you get my point. Yeah. We have to have a broader approach to that education than just like loud mouths like John Dunn. I think it has to be from the authority and the community, and that's the shelter. I think one of the things that we have learned that's been interesting is how much power shelters have to sort of shape community perception. That was one of the things that I've that has surprised me and that has been one of the most consistent pieces of feedback that Julie and I have gotten and the rest of the Million Cat team on how communities have responded when shelters have implemented community cat programs where there's anticipation of resistance. But it seems like when the shelter team really has time to get fully on board, and so they're behind it, and they communicate with a lot of confidence, like, no, this is what we do. 
the public is just like, okay, well, you know best. The public accepts it to the same extent that they accept anything else. And so there's still, you know, always, this is, shelters are always in the crosshairs and there are always a, a small handful of noisy people that feel like they probably know better than what the shelter is doing. And it, and it can be the opposite. You know, one shelter will be getting criticized for doing open adoptions while another shelter is getting criticized for not doing open adoptions. But there's no more squeakiness when we communicate with a lot of confidence. I don't know if I want to say that part about the conviction, the, you know, the, the haters on Facebook. Like, it's just true, though. Like, no matter what you do, you're going to get some criticism. But also, like, what we didn't realize was how much we were setting the tone and the rules of the conversation. And I think really the challenge that we have is to sort of get the new word out like you're trying to do on next door. That for so long, we have educated the public, like bring the cat in, bring the cat in. That's the right thing to do. Bring the cat in. And now we're trying to tell a different story. Like, no, you don't need to bring the cat in. Schedule an appointment for spay neuter. Schedule an appointment for spay neuter. Post the picture of the lost cat on, on Facebook. Find the owner. Foster the kitten. But we have a lot more authority than I think we have believed or that I believed that we had. The most vulnerable animals in shelters are cats. The teeny tiny ones, neonatal kittens, saving them is a challenge. The resources, people, and budget, it's emotional roller coaster stuff to the max. So, to figure out how we can do better, episode 10, we talked to the kitten lady, Hannah Shaw. But it's still hard. I mean, this sure. is not an easy task. Uh, like I say, we used eight weeks as sort of the, you know, again, that's easy. They're cute. They're fluffy. Love taking photos. Easy to get them into homes. But the highs and lows of kitten work, as you said, you know, getting somebody into that and being realistic that maybe they won't all make it. There are things that I think are difficult to make that case to a member of the public, somebody who is a longtime foster. So again, how are we really saying to them, you know, obviously the need is urgent. We need you. And this is going to be hard. I mean, I think that a thing that can be very helpful is community building. So um, not having people feel like they're just doing this on their own, but they actually have access to other people. You know, this is hard and we do lose kittens. You know, even I've, I've been doing this more than a decade. I do this full time. And I still lose kittens sometimes. And it, it is very hard, but I also have sort of the right framework around it to understand the bigger picture and what I'm doing here. I think that organizations definitely should have some kind of strategy in place for when people lose kittens so that you are um, retaining those foster parents and having them have a positive experience. One thing I tell organizations when I do staff training is that uh, everybody's so focused on foster recruitment, but I actually think foster retention is more important than foster recruitment because you can recruit people over and over again by dangling a cute kitten in their face. But if you don't support that foster parent, if you don't send them a card when they lose a kitten, if you don't give that person education and access to um, you know supplies and medical resources, then you will not have that foster parent in the future. And so how many more foster parents could we have? if we had, you know, done the right things with the ones that did sign up before, but then we lost them, right? So I definitely encourage anyone who's thinking we need more fosters, we need more fosters, like, be sure that you're not just attracting the foster, but you actually are 
um, managing your fosters properly and keeping them and retaining them. Uh, but in terms of, you know, attracting those fosters to the more vulnerable, vulnerable population, I think, you know, giving people the ability to start where they're comfortable and then slowly work their way down. So I would never say like, you know, hey, you're a new foster or you're a foster who's only done eight week old healthy kittens. Let's give you a premature orphan uh, with a broken leg. <laughs> We're not going to do that. Um, but maybe take that foster parent and give them um, a mom with babies. Giving somebody a mom with babies is a really cool place to start. But I think everybody's path is going to be different. Some people dive right in. I mean, when I got involved, I dove right in and I never stopped. Uh, but we have to, I think, like everything else, you know, it's it's easier to imagine that we can just have one answer for every single thing. But every every situation in animal welfare is case by case, including dealing with foster parents. So getting to know each of your foster parents and what works best for them is probably the best thing. And for some people, it's going to be diving right in. For other people, it's going to be doing it slowly, maybe doing a mom and babies. Maybe for some people, you could do like a um, weekend foster sitter type situation where you try it for two days and then give them back to their other foster parent. Uh, another thing that I think people can do is develop like mentor situations where you have your superstar foster parents and you actually give them more responsibilities and um, let that person really shine in that role and, you know, be a mentor to other people. Uh, I know that a lot of people really want more responsibility and more ability to sort of supervise and mentor other people. So I think that's another thing that you can do. I mean, I have, I'm full of advice on things with bottle babies for organizations. I mean, another thing that I think you can do is if you do have foster parents who only want to do bottle babies, let them only do bottle babies. Like if somebody's like, I just want to do them until they're five weeks and weaned, don't make that person keep them until they're adopted. Like let that person give them to another foster parent and treat your foster parents like gold because they are, especially your bottle baby foster parents. You know, I can't tell you how many foster, because I deal with both sides, right? I deal with the um, organization side. And then I also deal with the foster side. And I've also personally been on both ends of that equation. Um, and I hear a lot from both ends. And I think really a big thing is people, people don't always have a good experience of fostering. So I think, again, foster retention, like making sure people have a good experience is arguably far more important than foster recruitment. It's just not for me. You'll never get me to do it. And I'm so thankful there are people who will. Um, of course, people will learn this. I believe I've said it more than once already on this podcast that I the highs and lows are not for me. I got to be in the middle in this work. It's hard enough. And I got to be honest with you, I know it sounds like the worst complaint, but it's hard enough for me to talk about the tough stuff, to see photos of the tough stuff. I'm one of those people. My wife, my wife found an orphaned uh, neonate at her work. And we were very sure that this uh, kitten needed help. And in fact, I think we, our biggest problem is that maybe we left her a little bit too long, but we brought her in and obviously you're hopeful, even though you know the chances are very slim. And uh, after a lot of money and a lot of heartache, uh, unfortunately she didn't make it. And what a good reminder for me that it isn't for me. Now, I care deeply about that work. I am a cat guy. Uh, and so we're going to donate, we're going to promote like whatever we can do from our perspective. We're just not the neonate people. Do you know what I mean? Totally. I think that that's actually a really beautiful thing that you just said, that you can find ways to help while also respecting your own emotional 
um, needs. You know, I think how, knowing your own uh, needs and boundaries is really important in rescue work. And I'll give you my example. Okay. So I always tell people I love good cats and I love bad cats, but when it comes to like fostering dogs, I like good dogs, but I can't, I can't do it with like the barking dog. Like, and I'm saying good and bad. I'm like, that's, I'm, I don't mean they're bad. They're no dog is a bad dog and no cat is. A bad no, we got cat. you. I'm, we got you. you got Nobody's going to send you me. hate mail. <laughs> they're going to, I'm going to get mail. Like, you said dogs are bad. I'm not saying that. I love dogs. We actually had um, some dogs here yesterday for three hours because one of our volunteers found two uh, very sweet Labradors running around the neighborhood and she didn't have a fenced yard. So she said, can I bring them to you? And we it's had okay. these dogs here. Listen, Listen, Hannah, you're you're the kitten lady. Listen. We all expect you hate dogs. So it's no, fun. I love dogs. I fost- I just fostered two puppies. Listen, I love dogs. But um, my example of this is like, you know, I mean, my cats get very freaked out by like barking dogs or aggressive um, dogs. And so I can't, that's not something that I can do. Even if I love those animals, even if I want to help those animals, that's not my path, right? Um, so I think we all have to sort of know what our piece of the pie is and stay in that while also, um, you know, respecting and supporting and donating to and lifting up the voices of people who are doing the other work. And thank goodness somebody is working with all of those, you know, barking dogs with anxiety because I I can't do it. (laughs) You know, I I can't do it. And I'm glad somebody else can because that's um, one less thing for me to focus on. I'm very happy um, focusing on the issue that I focus on. And obviously my work is, is extremely focused. And I think that that is uh, a really positive thing. I think when we focus on what we are best at, uh, it, it sort of, you know, one enables us to really dive in on an issue that, uh, that needs us. And then it, it also empowers other people to see that, okay, we, we don't all have to be doing the same exact thing. We just all have to be doing something, whatever your piece is. Um, I hope I didn't just totally stick my foot in my mouth talking about dogs. Listen, I really like dogs. They're very sweet. I could delete. I could edit this out. No, you know, yeah. it's fine. It's I might. Fine. I might not. Let's see how it's the rest fine. of this it's goes. It's fine. We'll see. I just, yeah, we had these dogs here yesterday and they were so sweet. They were like these big yellow labs, like just so cute and dumb and very sweet. And um, we had them for about three hours before we found their family. And I was, it was starting to like, the sun was starting to get low. And I was thinking, am I going to have these like hundred pound Labradors running around my house tonight? Cause I would, like I would, I just wouldn't have signed up for that, but I would, but I kind of did by volunteering my home, but it's, you know, it's not like That's every day. Right. Whether or not they should be picked up aside those, you know, an, or- an orphan litter that truly needs help. Uh, somebody cared enough to bring them to the shelter, believing that was a place that they could help. What if you could be the one that helps, right? So that's the thing we've talked about, about giving them resources, supporting them. And it's not going to be right for everybody. But the fact that somebody cared that much, there are going to be people, if you give them that option, they are going to say, you know what? Y'all give this a try. I do have some data around that. Um, I have talked with a lot of organizations that have intervention programs like that where they put somebody in front of the door and if people try to bring kittens in they stop them and say let me train you how to do this let me send you home with some supplies and um, the the success rate 
for the organizations I've talked with is around 40%. So around 40% of people, if you bring, if they bring a kitten into an animal shelter, thinking they're helping them by dropping them off, if given supplies and information and a little bit of training will actually become the foster parent. It's huge. I mean, think if you, if you didn't have to recruit that volume of people because you recruit them from finders. And I should remind people, a large percentage of people who foster kittens started because they found a kitten outside. That was also in the survey that I did um, in 2016. And I believe it was 76% of people who foster kittens say that they started by finding a kitten outside, not by signing up to foster. And that is, uh, I'm included in that 76%. It's not like one day I thought I should sign up to foster kittens. What happened for me was one day I found a kitten in a tree and I was like, okay, what do I do here? And that was how I fostered my first kitten. Um, well, that's my cat Coco who I still have now and she's 11 years old. Uh, but Uh, you know, that's how I got involved was by finding one. And so we need to give people the benefit of the doubt that if you find a kitten outside and you're trying to help that kitten, uh, a lot of those people can become our best foster parents. So let's give them that opportunity rather than just saying, okay, we'll take them in. You know, sometimes I think in animal welfare, we're so used to thinking that we have to do everything and we're the only ones who can do it. Uh, But that's not true. Anybody can learn how to do this stuff. And we really ought to empower the community much more. And another legend in the cat world, Jackson Galaxy. A very fun conversation. Episode 41. We talked about everything from what it's like to be Jackson Galaxy to his music career in the mid-90s with his band Pope of the Circus Gods. But we also talked about how we can do better when it comes to ending the killing of cats in shelters. We know that return to field programs save lives, uh, struggle, not just with public perception. I'm saying there's a struggle even amongst those of us in the field over, you know, the the idea that we're trapping, neutering and returning a friendly cat. It's just not, it's not universally accepted, right? I mean, but that cat is very likely owned either by one person or oftentimes several people in the neighborhood. We're taking away those pets. It's breaking the bond, the human-animal bond. It's also counterintuitive because they'll just go get another cat. So how how do we communicate that, that a cat outside is okay? Right. I mean, I think, you know, I think there's work being done right now on the shelter level. And, of course, you guys have, have done a lot of this as well where we <clears throat> reimagine what sheltering looks like so that we sort of interrupt this cycle of bringing a cat. Thank you for bringing the cat. Cat goes in a cage. I think being able to sort of interrupt the cycle at the door or outside the door of a shelter and say, wait a minute, just letting you know, this is what's going on here. I, I, I just think that, that, you know, I can say it's all about education, but honestly it, it, it's a real gray area. Here's a good example. We are all still learning. We're all still navigating our, our own world as advocates. I feel like over the past couple of years, there's been a bit of a demonization of the word feral, and it bugs the hell out of me. Like, I love feral cats. Like, feral cats. Ones that, that 
yes, they fall into the, the bigger shell of community cat, but you know, it's just, I just think the word got a bad rap. And instead of embracing it, we just changed terminology or start burying the terminology. And that, that bothers me because if you don't understand what a feral cat is, then you're not going to understand what a friendly is. And you're not going to understand what a community cat You've you got to start somewhere. And I think that, that we've had a hard time as a whole being able to explain this in a real concerted way. You know that when we were doing that last episode of, of uh, My Cat in Philly, and I was really, I was really nervous because this was, you know, an hour long special. And I really just wanted to make sure I hit all of my sort of welfare notes and, you know, and there was this one sort of those little interview bits, you know, the little five second, 10 second interview bit where I'm asked to define what a community cat is. And I was like, oh, okay. And I called everybody. I called everyone I knew that I was like, okay, tell me what this is. Just so I could get a poll. Nobody said it the same way twice. And that's a problem. So if we can't nail it, then we can't ask the public to nail it either. And I, I just, you know, it's, I, I wish I had a really good answer on this one. Um, there's a lot of times where we're figuring out what a, a friendly cat is versus a feral once they've hit any kind of an institutionalized environment. Good luck with that sometimes. It's hard. Um, so... Uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> I know, man, <laughs> believe me, it's not easy. I, I think you're totally right. Uh, and dead on about trying to make the distinction for the public. You know, I assume I'm not privy to these types of conversations, but I assume that's what community cat was meant to do is take all of these categories that, you know, are muddled enough for us and try to bring them together to say, truly feral, stray, unowned, stray, owned, outdoor cat, but just say to the public, it doesn't matter which group the cat in front of you is in. That cat is there. Yeah. It's community, lives in your community, deserves to live. Right. And that, I think, is a huge point for me. Cats are resilient yeah. uh, when they're managed and cared for, fixed, fed. They can, they're not only surviving outside, they can thrive. And again, if we're doing it right, some of the concerns like wildlife predation, we can, we can manage that. And I, and I think that, that, you know, and look, there are a lot of extreme beliefs about this. There are people who think that it's better to not be alive than to be out there, which I think is absurd. I think if you really care, you make their life as good as you can make it. You build winter houses in the winter. You take the cues from so many people who have done so much work in terms of making sure they have access to food and water during the winter months and warmth if they need it. And, and you know, making sure that you're doing whatever you can for your colony uh, in terms of just maintaining. But the idea that they all belong someplace that's not where they are is a fantasy. And there's millions and millions of them on the street. And our, our real goal should be at this point to let's make it so that in 10, 15 years, we're not dealing with having to ask these questions as much as we have to. Now, let's, let's really put all of our, our efforts into TNR. And, and But it's weird. You know, I got to say, I, you know, we have at the moment, God, I had to think about it, uh, seven cats in the house. That's it? Seven? It, it depends, man. Right now we're fostering two, so it's nine. Three dogs, 
uh, turtle, a couple of chickens. Anyway, so, um, but we have our feral community outside as well. And, you know, we have a rotating cast of about five or six over the years, uh, and we have a pretty big catio. So if we know that a cat's not going to, because of age or injury or whatever, they're not going to make it, then we can bring them to the catio and try to introduce them. But there was this one guy who was, he was our heart, man. I mean, we adored this cat, Eddie, tremendously. And he's been coming around since he was about, probably about a year and a half old. And his twin brother's out here, too. Uh, And we tried, man. We tried because, you know, we could pick him up. We could pet him after, you know, it took about a year. But every time we tried to bring him in, it was like one of those horror movies where all of a sudden, like, heads are spinning around and they're crawling up the ceilings and whatever. He literally crawled up the ceiling, wedged himself out in ways that we just never thought possible. Anyway, we tried six, seven times. And he went missing about uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, We think he was, at at the end of the day, I mean, I think he was just ill. And, you know, and when we found him, it was just, we mourn him today the way we mourn any of our cats. And still, it's just, it's really painful. But we gave him the best life that we could give him, knowing that that was his life. That was his choice. He wanted out there. He did not want in here. And we would have made him miserable. And I think that at the end of the day, just respecting the needs of these individual cats and maybe not trying to spend all of our time labeling and maybe just thinking about what is what are these individuals want? We had another one who came around here a couple weeks ago. Of course, when Eddie died, you know, nature hates a bit vacuum. He was keeping a lot of other cats away and all of a sudden. But one of them was the tamest tame cat ever. Like we had a hard time keeping him out. We'd go out there to feed, and he would just get really... And he wasn't neutered. We put signs all over the neighborhood, took pictures of him, did that whole thing. Nobody claimed him. We couldn't bring in another cat into this place, especially one who wasn't neutered yet. Um, it would just upset the apple cart in a pretty horrible way around here. And so uh, we, we you know, uh, had a friend at a local rescue help us place him. But that's just like, that was an individual. He let us know very clearly what he wanted. And we just couldn't give it to him, so we made sure that somebody else did. I, I don't know if I'm making any sense. No, no, no. You, you're totally making sense. I think when you said it's about respecting the individual needs of the cat, I think is the way you put it. It's such a succinct and, and perfect way of saying it. You mentioned best friends uh, earlier, the sanctuary on Utah, and one of the founders, uh, Silva Batista, I uh, also will not try to do. Uh, her English accent. Uh, the sanctuary is an incredible place. Really is. Anyone who who goes there, you see it, you feel it. Hey man, I got married there. Oh, that's right. I've seen the the photos. Like it was in like People magazine or something. I think, and that's that's how famous you are, man. Your wedding photos go in People. But the, the sanctuary is the heart of what we do uh, and who we are. Right. But I think. And I need to be careful here, I think, on how I frame this out because I might get in trouble. But personally, on some level, I think that the sanctuary provides an almost um, unreal expectation. You know, people will say, well, we just need a best friends in every state. All cats should be at a place like Cat World. Well, yeah, that would be great, but it's not feasible. And not all cats need that right? Like you're talking about individual cats. So to an extent, it's almost like it unintentionally drives 
a narrative of what a good home is, right? What standards of care, like if a cat is healthy and loved and cared for, but lives outside in a big city, that cat doesn't need to be in a, in cat world in Utah, at the sanctuary. Right. Right. Is that nuts? And well, no, it's not nuts at all. No, no. It's, and and not only is it not nuts, it puts it, like you said, the burden then that it puts on you guys on other more larger scale cat uh, sanctuaries uh, or rescues. Like uh, the only one that comes to my head is cat's house of the Kings, where you've got 800 cats, you know, and 27 fenced in acres or whatever. But people just want to drop their cats off or drop ferals off or do whatever, as opposed to taking ownership of the issue. And I think you're right. I think, uh, as you probably know, I mean, the thing that frustrates trappers more than anything is when someone says, hey, I've got 12 cats that, you know, I just moved into a new house. I've got 12 cats back here. Help me. Well, we can hear. We, we can loan you traps, teach you how to do this. Wait, you want me to do this? You do it. I think that, that we have to spend more time getting folks invested themselves into saying, no, 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 these guys belong here in your neighborhood, in your community. This is where they belong. But if you don't want 35 of them in a couple of months, you better learn the, the what's actually pretty simple. This is all sort of reversed, I suppose, because the very first episode of the podcast is going to be the last clip you hear today. It is the most downloaded episode and it's the CEO of Best Friends, Julie Castle. Now, what's so interesting about this is to go back and listen to that episode 273 days ago when the pandemic, you know, it was still very new at that time. Of course, I want you to go listen to all of the episodes, but definitely make time for that one. People will sometimes hear Best Friends, big organizations talk these, you know, kind of big vision things and say, easy for you. You've got money. You've got time. I can't do that. I'm over here and I'm doing the best I can to survive every day. But again, we're forced to do this. We're all in this. And whatever you're doing, wherever you live, the size of your organization, whatever you're doing to adapt and survive, that is a lesson we can all learn from. I'm going to talk in a big way here. and I'm going to say that this podcast is playing a role, but whether it's the podcast or any discussion platform that we have, we have to talk to each other. And that talking and learning is really what's going to get us through this. And if you've got a good idea, we want to hear it. And if we've got a good idea, we'll tell you. Yeah. It's not just our industry, but we're seeing this happen across the globe where people are really digging deep to help each other out. And frenemies or competitors in in different spaces and industry are coming together like never before. And the same thing's happening with us. And I think it's a beautiful moment. I really do. I mean, we have more in common than not. Most of the people that choose to be in animal control, animal welfare, animal rights, whatever name you want to put on it, are really incredibly good people. And they are trying to do the right thing. And I think that what we've seen out of this is a collective voice almost. And you've seen different parts of our industry step up and and lead segments of that. And hats off to the ASPCA for immediately coming out with a $5 million grant for a lot of these small shelters, small humane societies, rescue groups. 
hats off to them. Hats off to HSUS for all the legislative initiatives that they're partnering with us and others on. Hats off to AWA for basically pulling together a group of animal welfare leaders from across all sections and sending out a daily newsletter. That's not an easy thing to do. And we're just seeing it again and again. And I think, again, it's together we can do more. And it is the best of us is showing right now. And that is really incredible. Like I've never seen before in this movement. And I think it speaks a lot to the character of everybody who's involved in animal welfare right now. Just a quick yes or no. Are you scared? Can it be yes and no? (laughs) Sure. And that's fine. So what do you, so you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror and you have to get up and lead meetings with people at Best Friends and talk to people at other organizations and steer, you know, this, all of these people and organizations through this. What do you say to yourself? Is there like a, you know, I want to know how you are, you are managing these fears. How are you getting through this? So I think I'm going to be honest and vulnerable right now. Yes, I am scared, but no, I'm not scared. Every morning I get up and I go on a walk. And fortunately, I have the incredible, incredible distinction of living here in the canyon. And so I walk along the canyon rim and I always, it, it, it really elevates my thinking in a way that nothing else does because it does make me realize how small we are in this big universe. Like this is just a moment in time in a much bigger play. So it does make me think, okay, this puts everything in perspective, but it also makes me think, that the power of one individual can change a lot. And the more that I can inspire individuals that either work for me or that work with me or who are donors or volunteers, if I can inspire that one person to do an act of kindness right now, to save a life, to maybe give to an organization that desperately needs it right now, because there are rescue groups and humane societies that are probably pretty slim right now. If I can inspire somebody to do that, not that my day's work is done, but that's a huge success for me right now. I'm scared because I'm concerned that this is going to last for a long time. And it, I keep saying to people that this is a marathon and that we need to pace ourselves. And I'm concerned about the fabric of society and the wear and tear it's going to take on us through this time. I have a lot of confidence in the human spirit, but I am concerned about this is not going to last for another month. It's not going to last for another two months. It's not going to last for another three months. And I think the more we can mentally prepare for that and recognize that every day we need to search for those opportunities. We need to search for that silver lining. We need to know that it might be us, it might be you, the listener, who is that person that's going to inspire somebody. And you don't even know that, but it is your duty to be that person. You have to have your best game right now. You have to wake up every morning with a clear head. You have to be absolutely at your best during this time, because there is not going to be another time in the history of your lifetime 
or at least in humankind that we've experienced where there is going to be so much demand on you to be that just incredibly best version of you that you can find. And I think it's going to require everybody digging deep every single day. And that that's going to be a hard thing to manage and maintain. I, I'm most afraid of that. I'm most afraid of the human spirit crumbling along the way and in different forms and it making it that much harder for us to get through this. We have to stick together. And that's why the neighbor to neighbor thing is so important. And that, that human connectedness even within an organization is so important. We use Facebook Workplace uh, at Best Friends, uh, which offers the opportunity to do live. It's live video, which you can do, I guess, on regular Facebook. And you've made it a priority every day to hold one of those, you know, organization-wide every day, 3 p.m. Eastern. Julie or somebody is going to be there giving an update on what's happening. And even if there isn't a big update, what I think is so powerful is having that moment. It's a break in the day, but it is that connectedness, particularly for those who find themselves working at home, that isolation, whatever it is we can do to have that, it is that feeling of togetherness. We are in it together. And I just think it's so, it's so important. And it doesn't matter what organization, where you live, what you do. Again, even if it's your family, you have to stay in touch with people. It's the only way I think to get through it. It is. It is. I mean, and I, I, I say that during this time, and this is going to sound, I don't want this to sound twee because I'm dead serious about this. But during this time, the only thing that's going to get us through this is kindness. And it isn't just kindness to our fellow human beings. It's kindness to the animals around us. It's kindness to, you know, kindness is not a commodity. This is something that everybody has the capacity to give. Everybody has the capacity to be kind right now. And you need to be more kind than you've ever been in your entire life. Look, when you get to the other side of this, you're going to have less. You're going to have less money. You're going to have less assets. Everybody is. Not just, everybody is in this together. And the kinder we are and the more acts of kindness that we share, that is going to be the thing that really gets us through. Bottom line, sure, the economy is scary. I don't know what it's going to look like. Sure, you know, everybody's worried about donations or their organization. Sure, everybody's worried about what happens when people stop fostering. Is there going to be a flood of animals that hit the shelter? You know, any numerous things people are going to be worried about. I'm most worried about the human spirit and people hitting their breaking point. And we need to make sure that we are there for people if that happens. And that is why this fabric is so important. And that's why it's so important that people practice self-care. Take that daily meditative walk. Take a day off. The world is not going to stop spinning. It isn't. The sun will rise tomorrow. And this is where you have to put one foot in front of the other. This is a moment for you to either rise to the, the occasion or crumble under the stress of it. And we are all going to have those days when we crumble. It's just, we're, it's going to be inevitable, but it's how we manage that. But it's also other people recognizing that we're having that day and being able to reach out and say, hey, you know, let's take a pause here. Like we just need to be more patient and generous than ever before. 
We know that the end of 2020 does not mean smooth sailing from here on. And in fact, challenges such as the economy and COVID still, you know, these things aren't going away. But it is an opportunity, I think, to wipe the proverbial slate clean, like, I don't know, burn sage or whatever it is you're into, just to hit a reset button, breathe, get recentered as you turn the page on the calendar. The producers of the podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast. <laughs>